When little Helen was born, she was just like any little baby girl anywhere. She would coo and coo. When she was six months old, she started to talk. And when she was one year old, she started to learn to walk. But little Helen, when she was just short of her two-year birthday, got sick. Poor little Helen. They called the doctor, and the doctor came and checked her out, and she had a terrible fever. The doctor said she has a brain fever. Well, after several days, finally her fever broke, and little Helen started to get better. But her mother noticed something. When she rang the dinner bell, little Helen's ears didn't perk up. She didn't look around. In fact, when mother came to talk to her, she didn't even hardly respond until mother touched her. She even waved her hand in front of little Helen's face, but she didn't turn her eyes to look at her. She just stared off in the distance, as if she couldn't see anything. Poor little Helen. Her mother and father soon learned that because of her fever, she had become both blind and deaf. She couldn't talk to anyone. She'd forgotten how to talk. She couldn't hear, and she couldn't see. And oh, what a sad childhood she had growing up, with no friends, not able to talk to mommy and daddy. Oh, she could hug them, she could feel them, she could touch them, but she couldn't hear them, and she couldn't see them. And she got so frustrated, she would throw a terrible temper tantrum. Day after day after day, she would throw these terrible tantrums. And she only had one little friend, little Martha Washington, who was the daughter of the family cook. Martha and Helen would play together, and Martha would try to communicate with Helen using some little signs that she had invented between the two of them, and it was the best that they could do. But poor little Helen's parents, they wanted so badly for Helen to learn to talk again, to be able to enjoy the world. And so they traveled to different places. They traveled to the school, a special school for blind children, to see if maybe a teacher there would be willing to work with Helen. And finally, when Helen was seven years old, they found a teacher by the name of Anne, Anne Sullivan. Anne said she would be willing to come and try to teach little Helen. But what could she do? Anne had studied at the School for the Blind how to teach blind people, but she'd never tried to teach someone who was both blind and deaf. Well, Anne got on a train and rode to Helen's home in Alabama. When she arrived at the Keller home, she brought in a little dolly for little Helen. As she gave the doll to Helen, she took her hand and spelled into her hand the word doll. D-O-L-L, doll. At first, Helen was curious, what is this little game she's trying to play? But she had no idea what Anne Sullivan was trying to teach her. Day after day, Anne Sullivan would work with Helen. But Helen couldn't seem to make any connection between these, these words that Anne was signing into her hand and the objects that she was trying to teach her about. 
It just seemed like a game to her. And Helen kept throwing these tantrums. She was so frustrated. She couldn't talk. She couldn't communicate because she couldn't see and she couldn't hear. Finally, Anne was about ready to give up. She'd tried everything that she could think of. But she thought, you know, Helen is being distracted here in the house, in the big house with all the siblings and the people around. I wonder if we moved into the little cottage on the edge of the property. Maybe, just maybe, Helen would be able to focus, and then she would be able to learn. And so they did, just the two of them, Anne Sullivan and Helen Keller. By this time, Helen was just seven years old, and she moved into the little cottage with Anne. One day, as Anne was trying, trying to teach Helen, she took her out to the water pump. She held little Helen's hand under the faucet and pumped the big handle until the water gushed out and flowed down over Helen's hand. Then, as the water was flowing down, she took Helen's other hand and signed into her hand, W-A-T-E-R, water. Suddenly, it was as if a light bulb came on in little Helen's mind. Water! That word, that funny game that she's playing in my hand, that means water. That's this thing that is pouring down over my hand. And she grabbed Anne Sullivan's hand and signed back into her hand, W-A-T-E-R, water. Next, little Helen started pounding the ground as if to say, what do you call this? What is its letter name? As soon as Anne Sullivan spelled the word into Helen's hand, she, Helen dragged her to the next object and the next. And by the end of the day, Helen had learned the name of 30 different words. Over the next 49 years, Anne Sullivan would continue to be Helen's teacher. From that day forward, Helen had a breakthrough. She began to learn. She went to school. She went to college. Over 25 years, it took 25 years for little Helen to learn to talk clearly. But she did learn to talk, and she became a well-known author and speaker, became one of the most well-known women of the early 20th century. Boys and girls, have you ever had a time when you felt like things were just not going your way, that everything was against you, and you could never make anything of your life? Well, Jesus has a plan for you. Just like Anne Sullivan was able to teach little Helen how to understand and how to talk, he can work a miracle for you in your life, too. You know, Jesus was known through his earthly ministry for exactly that, working miracles. He would take up the cause of the poor, take up the cause of the outcast, those whom everyone else had cast off. He rooted for them. You know, he, he opposed the Pharisees. He exposed the hypocrisy of the scribes, the rabbis. He called them hypocrites. But he went out of his way to cleanse a leper. To cast out a demon. To heal a paralytic. To cause the mute to speak. Yes, to raise the dead to life. That's my God. That's my Jesus. He worked a miracle for me. And yes, there's a recurring theme throughout the Gospels, and you might have got a hint of it from my children's story, that Jesus restores the sight of the blind. You know, when the disciples of John came to Jesus, 
John was in prison and, and he sent his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the Christ or are we supposed to look for another? Jesus didn't answer their question, at least not right away. But they sat there all day. And at the end of the day, Jesus, after they'd seen all of his works, Jesus sent them back to John with his report in Matthew 11, verse 5. Tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. My friends, what would you do? Or maybe I should ask, what wouldn't you do in order to have your sight? You know, I think it's hard for most of us to appreciate the gifts that we have, and I'm talking to myself too, to appreciate those gifts until we go for some time without them, or until we enter into the life of someone who doesn't have those gifts and blessings in the same way that you and I have them. Just before I uh, quit my job at the health department last month, one of my coworkers was telling me about the ex- his experience recently getting LASIK surgery. And uh, his, his vision had, had gotten progressively worse, and he was, he was wearing the glasses like you see I'm wearing the glasses. And uh, so uh, his uh, stepdad, if I understand correctly, is an ophthalmologist, so he went in for this surgery, and it's a very routine uh, procedure. I, I know several people who've had LASIK surgery or cataract surgery, which is a somewhat similar uh, operation on the eyes. Cataract, of course, to, to replace the, the clouded lens. But uh, in this case, he was going in to get his vision corrected, and uh, he described the procedure to me, and honestly, from the description, it sounded really, really scary. Um, now, he said it wasn't really uh, painful, which... I find hard to believe, but he said it wasn't that painful, but it was very nerve-wracking. Anyway, so they, they go in and they get his eye prepped for surgery, and a machine comes down. The whole procedure takes less than a minute from what he says. So this machine comes in and with a laser and uh, cuts the top of his eyeball off and removes it. And then the laser goes in and makes these little precise cuts in the lens to correct his vision, and then pops the top of his eye back on. And he says, as soon as it pops the top of your eye off, you go completely blind in that eye. And uh, that, that's the part. I don't, I, you notice I'm still wearing the glasses. I haven't gotten the surgery. <laughs> but anyway, so, and, and he pops the top of your eye back on and you can see. But kind of, kind of blurry. But after a few days, after it all heals up, he could see fine. And then he went in for the next one. I guess it wasn't too bad. He went in and got the other eye done uh, a few days or a few weeks later. And... Uh, when he was talking to me and telling me this, he's, he's looking at me, he doesn't have any glasses on, and he can see just fine without the glasses. So I guess it's, it's great. But kind of the point I'm, I'm telling you is what will, what will people go through or what won't they do to, in order to see, in order to see well? You know, in Mark chapter 8, and I'd invite you to turn there with me because we'll be looking at this story. In Mark chapter 8, we find this story of one of Jesus' miracles of healing. In many ways, you know, it's similar, perhaps, but in many ways, this miracle is unique among the miracles of Jesus. And that's why I want us to spend a a few moments today just looking at this miracle of the healing of this blind man in Bethsaida. We find actually there in Mark chapter 8 and verse 22, then he, speaking of Jesus, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Now, Bethsaida, what is that word? What is that town? It's a small town on the western shore 
of the Sea of Galilee. If you look, of course, at a map of the Holy Land, Galilee is in the northern part. That's where Jesus was from. He was from the, the town of Nazareth. Bethsaida is just up right on the shore of Galilee. The name literally means house of fishing. So you can imagine here this little fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's not far from Jesus' hometown. In fact, this town was the hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. We find that in John chapter 1. But here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been teaching in Galilee. He's just worked a miracle in feeding the the 4,000 from seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. They know that Jesus can work miracles. You know, they say, and Jesus quoted the proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Jesus, This was Jesus' own country. But the poor were coming to him and flocking to him and those who were sick and those who needed healing. So Jesus comes to this fishing village with his disciples and already the crowds are starting to gather. It's like they've gone ahead of him and they know that he's there. And this man's friends are leading this blind man to Jesus. Please, just touch him. That's all you have to do. By this time, I have to imagine, people know the drill. You bring someone to Jesus, all he's got to do is touch them, and they're healed, just like that. I mean, sometimes he doesn't even have to touch them. Sometimes all he does is speak a word, and they're healed. But in any case, it happens instantly, not a second thought. So they bring this man to Jesus, and they're expecting exactly that. He's teaching there in the crowd, just reaches over, touches the blind man. Wow, I can see. Why should they expect anything less? So they bring this man to Jesus. He reaches down and takes the man's hand, begins walking out of town, leading the blind man, just like his friends were leading him, walking to the edge of town. Where is Jesus going? What is he doing? See that there in verse 23. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. So now that he's taking him to the outside of town, still leading him, hasn't healed him yet, even though he's touched him, obviously. He's not healed yet. He's leading him out of town. He does the strangest thing. He spits on his eyes. Now, to me, if if you came and spat in my face, I think I would take that as an insult. I try not to get insulted easily, but I think I might, if you did it intentionally, I think I might take that as an insult. What is Jesus doing here? I mean, the soldiers and the guards at Jesus' trial and crucifixion, they were spitting in his face to insult him. And so I looked this, this word up in the Greek, and the word here, to spit, uh, in verse 23, is actually a slightly different word form than what we find, for example, when the soldiers are spitting in Jesus' face. Uh, the word is, is actually used only three times in the Gospels, and every time it's used in connection with Jesus' healing. This is a root word that means simply to spit, or referring to saliva. It's not the, the verb to spit at, which is the, the word that's describing what the soldiers were doing to Jesus, for example. So, so from the context here, Jesus is using his saliva, in a sense, to anoint this man. What does it mean? Why would he anoint with his saliva? And you know, I, I got to looking this up, and there's an ancient tradition, and some of you may have, have heard of this, but it was well known to the Jews of the time. And, and it might help us to understand kind of what's happening here. What is Jesus saying in this miracle? You see, in those days... and 
it's still important today, um, it, but especially in those days, it was important to know who was the firstborn son in a family. Not just the firstborn son, but the firstborn legitimate son. And today, if there's any question as to who the father of a child is, we can do what we call DNA testing or something like that, right? Uh, but back then, they didn't have that kind of technology, so it was possible for a son to grow up in a family, and there's still to be this question of legitimacy, right? So there was this legend, so to speak, that the saliva of a legitimate firstborn son had miracle-working powers. And it's well-documented even in the Jewish literature. I even looked it up in a Jewish encyclopedia, and you, you can find it there today, that this, this legend that the saliva of a legitimate firstborn son has these miracle-working powers. You might, have, you might have heard similar legends, I mean, here, even in Kentucky. Uh, you ever heard the seventh son of a seventh son? Yes. And you can, you can do all kinds of things if you're the seventh son of blowing someone's ear and cure an ear infection or blowing their mouth and cure, cure thrush or things like that. You've heard this. I see your heads nodding. So this was kind of one of these, one of these stories, so to speak, in the ancient Jewish society. So here Jesus, growing up in Nazareth, picture this, okay? He's growing up with Mary and Joseph, but Mary and Joseph both are open with the fact that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Well, what other alternative then you, do you have other than the fact that Jesus, if you don't believe who Jesus is, if you can't see with spiritual eyesight, Jesus is an illegitimate child, right? Jesus himself never claimed Joseph as his biological father. He spoke of his heavenly father. But, but how are we going to believe that Jesus' father is a heavenly father? This is just a really tall story. We've heard these stories before. That's, that's kind of the attitude of these people, especially in Nazareth, especially in Galilee, which is where Jesus is teaching. And so he takes this man, this blind man. He doesn't heal him instantly, but he takes him out of town. And there he anoints his eyes with saliva. He's saying it as if to say, if I am the true legitimate son of my heavenly father, the one I claim to be, then you will be healed. This is a test of my legitimacy. This is a test to know who my true father is. Who is Jesus' true father? An unknown Jewish man of low moral character or the great God Amen. of heaven? That's right. The heavenly father who said at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Hear him. So he anoints the man's eyes and he asks him, can you see? Can you see anything? And the man looks up and he says, I see, I see, I see men like trees walking. Verse 24. I can see, yes, Jesus, I can see. It's better than it was before because before I couldn't see anything. And now I can see, but, but it's blurry. And that's really the title of my message today, Blurred Vision. I can see, but I can't see well. Thank you, Jesus. At least I can get around. I can see the road. I can see people enough to keep from bumping into them. It's better than it was before, but no, he doesn't go away. He doesn't run back into town. Jesus healed me. He's, he's waiting for more because he knows from everything he's heard that when Jesus works a miracle, he doesn't do it halfway. Amen? Right. When Jesus works a miracle, does he do it halfway or no? no. Jesus 
can heal and he can restore your vision 100%. Amen. 2020 vision. No need to go back for a second surgery. He can do it, but in this case, he doesn't. And this is, I think, the, of all of the miracles that I find recorded in the Gospels, the only time when Jesus healed someone partially. But the blind man doesn't go away, and I'm so thankful for that in this story. The blind man stays there. And in verse 25, then he put his ha- hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. My friends, Jesus doesn't do a job halfway. Has Jesus begun a good work in you? He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My friends, before you and I have come to Jesus, we are spiritually blind. We cannot see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, we read, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit of God in our hearts, we cannot. We can't, things of God can be all around us and we just simply can't see them. That's right. Like a blind man walking down the street. Let us not be, my friends, let us not be like the people of the, in the time of Isaiah of whom he said, go, tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing but you don't see, but do not perceive. My friends, when a new Christian first comes to Christ, he or she begins to be able to see. Before we were blind, but now we can see. But my friends, in my own experience, and I believe many of us here today have had this experience too, when we first come to Jesus, we can see, but maybe not clearly. Maybe we can't see everything in this word just as God would have us to see it. How many of you, the first day you came to Christ, could stand up here and preach a sermon on the interpretation of the 2300-day prophecy? No. You don't come to a knowledge of everything in God's word in an instant. You come to it gradually, day by day by day. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then I shall know just as I am known. When we first behold the face of our dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we see it, but as it were, through cataracts. And as we continue to behold his face, day by day, we become transformed into his image until at last we can see him face to face. John writes in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How does Peter describe this experience of a Christian who has first come to Jesus? We find that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Did you know that when a baby is first born, he can look up into his mother's face as he's laying there in his arms, and he can see his mother's face. But if he looks out across the room, if he looks out the window, that baby, because of the way his eyes are formed, that baby is very nearsighted, and he cannot see anything else clearly. And as that child develops, 
as he nurses, as he grows, his eyes continue to develop. And pretty soon he's able to see not only mom, but dad. And he can see brother and sister and he can see outside. And you know, I think it's so often true of us as Christians. When we first come to Jesus, we can look up into Jesus' face and we can see him. But it takes time. It takes the milk of the word. The words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the words of the Holy Scripture, day by day, before we can see clearly. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to have poor eyesight. He doesn't speak much of his physical affliction, but, but in a letter to the Galatians, he writes of how they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if it was possible. You know, as Paul was ministering to the spiritual eyesight of the Galatian believers, they were ministering to his physical needs because of his physical eyesight. What about us? What about us here in the London Seventh-day Adventist Church? How do we relate to others within the church? Do we minister to each other's eyesight, whether physical eyesight or spiritual eyesight? Jesus asked the question in Matthew 7 and verse 3, My brothers, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? How is it, my friends, that we can gain this spiritual eyesight? How do we go about casting out those beams or those planks out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly, as Jesus says, to see the mote in our brother's eye? Amen. My friends, I believe that the miracle of Jesus healing the blind man in Bethsaida holds the key to understanding the answer, the key to receiving this spiritual eyesight. He came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. First of all, the man comes to Jesus. And my friends, if we sense our spiritual blindness, the first thing we have to do, we cannot, may not even be able to find Jesus on our own, but allow ourselves to be led to him, to be drawn into his presence. This man knew that he was blind. How many of us today who are spiritually blind, I'm talking about myself too, how many of us realize we are blind? Like the Laodicean church described in our scripture reading, we say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The first step this man had to take was to realize that he was blind and to come to Jesus for healing. Amen. Not only that, but he allowed himself to be led by Jesus. When Jesus took his hand, he followed Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 25, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. My friends, we must be willing to be led to Jesus. Amen. And from there, we must be willing to be led by Jesus to the Amen. place where he would have us to go. And where does Jesus lead us? Does he not so often, especially early in our Christian walk, and then again, from time to time, lead us to a quiet place? Amen. He says to his disciples in Mark 6, 31 and 32, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. 
So they departed to a deserted place by a boat, in a boat by themselves. In order to gain clear vision, oftentimes we have to come apart by ourselves Amen. to a deserted place right. to spend time every day in God's Word without Amen. the distractions of the television or the internet or the smartphone or the family or whatever it is. Yes, all those things are important. Well, some of them are. But the most important is God's Word. Amen. Preach God. To spend that time alone with Him. That's right. I'll take you back to the story, and I hope you listen to the story I shared to the children. When Helen Keller was seven years old, and Ann Sullivan was first trying to teach her to sign, with all the distractions around in the big house, she could not learn. But when she and Ann Sullivan moved alone together into the little cottage, and they could spend time together without all the distractions around, that is when Helen Keller had a breakthrough. Amen. That is when she learned the meaning of the signs. Amen. And the light dawned in her mind. And although she could not see, although she still could not hear physically, she could hear in her mind and she could see in her heart. And she gained an awareness of what was going on. And from that day forward, from that day forward, she learned to communicate with the rest Amen. of the world. Amen. My friends, have we been alone with Jesus? Do we take that time to be alone with him, to see his face until we can see him clearly. That's right. And last but not least, Jesus will bring us to a place where he can anoint our eyes with a spiritual eye salve to restore our spiritual vision. My friends, it doesn't happen in a moment. God's still working with me. He's still working with you too. Amen. We may not see clearly yet, but as our will is united with his will, our eyes become more and more opened day by day until our eyes see as he sees, until our hearts grow open to love as he's loved. Amen. Revelation 3 and verse 18, the message continues. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Amen. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Amen. And his love has been perfected in us. We cannot see God, but by God's grace, we can see as God sees. Amen. As we learn to love as God loves. Amen. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Amen. My friends, the Apostle Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know, even as I am also known. Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Oh Lord, open my eyes, that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp 
and set me free. Amen. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes. Illumine me, Spirit divine.